This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, we have a special guest. His name is Stefan Petroius. He is the CTO, Chief Technology Officer, of a company called WPP. It's a little agency. Maybe you heard of them. Maybe you haven't. You know, they just do, uh, last time I checked, a little over 12 billion pounds. The biggest agency in the world. Stefan, welcome to the show. Albert, wonderful. Thanks for having me. That's what I've read about you. But, you know, we understand WPP is a, actually a huge company and it's got many different like brands or sub brands or sub companies. Like, give us an idea. What is WPP and what do you oversee at a company of that size? Wonderful. Great question to start with. So WPP is the, the world's largest marketing services organization. Um, we're a holding company um, of uh, the world's largest advertising and marketing services companies brands that you probably have heard of as well. Companies like Ogilvy, VMLYNR, Wonderman Thompson, Group M. We service generally the world's largest marketers in terms of all their marketing and media investment activities. And we cover a very wide range of marketing services, all the way from, you know, developing insights about consumers, building brands, um, running e-commerce websites, um, placing media. We place approximately um, 25% of the world's paid media. Oh. So we're responsible <laughs> for an enormous amount of commercial activity in the world. It's a staggering number when people really sit down and think about it. Like it's, so it's a, for everyone listening, it's a holding company of marketing agencies. And each one of these agencies is like tens of thousands, can be up to tens of thousands of employees overseeing who knows how many brands and campaigns. And one of the things we know or I know about marketing and which we'll have you elaborate on is that brands are constantly asking agencies such as in the WPP family to constantly develop different ways, innovative ways to get in touch and engage with consumers. And you would think that, oh, uh, you know, like a serial company, what do they know about tech? Well, maybe they don't know much about tech. They're asking their agency to help them develop interactive experiences so that people can get closer to cereal. Now, you might say to yourself, like, that sounds insane, but that's what's happening. Give us an idea of what you oversee, what you're in charge of in towards of guiding these technologies, because every brand is asking for something of their own, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and you know, if you think about it, I mean, technology is really pervasive in, in, all, in all business these days, right? So, I mean, whether you're running an accounting firm or whether you're running, you know, a creative agency, technology is everywhere in what we do. It's, you know, it's how we communicate with each other. It's how we understand, you know, and run our, our businesses and optimize our businesses. We use technology to develop products that we help, that we use to service our clients. And then, of course, all our clients are working in this incredibly technology-mediated world where their consumers are engaging with them through technology, whether it's social media, whether it's you know, e-commerce, whether it's direct-to-consumer messaging, email marketing, et cetera. These are all you know, technologies that, that, that brands use to, get, to engage with consumers um, with. And so I think the, the, the sort of notion that, that, that agencies today produce advertising is, is, is very wrong. Yeah. Effectively, very, a very small percentage of what we do is actually advertising. Um, we do an enormous amount of what we call customer experience work. And customer experience is really everything from how a consumer experiences the brand in retail, you know, in a store, all the way through to how they experience the brand in an e-commerce website or encounter it on Amazon or effectively when they search for it in, in Google. So we've over the last kind of 10, 15 years, 
expanded the scope of what we do radically because of the way that consumers are using technology to engage with brands. Um, and, and it's really an absolutely fascinating field. I mean, I don't think there's a there's a day since I've joined this industry that I haven't learned something and that I haven't expanded my own frontiers about thinking how to apply technology to, to this practice. Yeah. So if you're listening to what Stefan just said, think about going into a retail footprint in, let's say, engaging with a kiosk of some sort. I'm thinking about like, I've seen kiosks that you can interactively immerse yourself into understanding how the product works because there might not be a sales associate, for example, to help me understand how the product works. It's a collaborative function between the brand and the marketing agency, because this, like what Stefan said, is like not just advertising. It is these experiences. Give us an idea of like the scope for your day to day, because you already said it. There's already multiple companies under the WPP umbrella. Each company is dealing with multiple projects. Every single one of those projects probably has a technological element to it. Like, do you, do the, all the CTOs of each agency roll up to you? Like, how does this? How does your day work? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. I sometimes wonder that myself. Um, so. <laughs> I spend an enormous amount of time with clients, and 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 I'd say over the last year I've probably spent um, close on sixty percent of my time with with our key clients, and and I do that because I I really believe that the only way to really understand what's necessary or what we have to develop and what we have to do is to really um, sense it at the call phase. So firstly, I'm, I'm incredibly client facing. Then secondly, I look at the the way that we are working today, from how we develop consumer insights to how we do creative development and production all the way through to how we place media, how we segment consumers, how we measure that, you know, the entire end-to-end supply chain. And I think about how we can apply technology more optimally in each of these areas. Now, the way we organize is that WPP is a very federated organization. So um, when I started in this role four years ago, I developed this concept of distributed innovation, which is a wonderfully empowering phrase for people that, that are technologists and you know, innovators in the business because what it says to them is, I, I'm relying on you to help me innovate. So you are my distributed network of, of innovation experts. And even though I'm looking at the thing end to end, and I'm looking at the macro levers I can pull to help you deliver this, I'm relying on your expert knowledge and your domain expertise to, to deliver um, innovation across the board. And so I've got a very strong network of, of technologists across all the agencies who are either delivering technology products for our clients or are developing products internally to help us optimize certain parts of that supply chain. So we have people who focus entirely on figuring out how to, um, how to drive more relevance in advertising without using personally identifiable information. We have people who focus entirely on thinking about how to use technology to optimize the, um, the production supply chain so you don't have to fly people around the world to make you know, video you know, assets for, for ads. We have people who specialize entirely on thinking about how do you measure the effectiveness of advertising across all channels using things like media mix modeling and attribution. I'm sort of the, the orchestrator of all these things, and I've got to be the ultimate generalist um, to understand how all these things fit together. But ultimately, I rely incredibly heavily on the experts in our, in our agencies um, to you know, articulate the problems effectively um, and then to come up with solutions which I can then help accelerate. So it's an incredibly incredibly collaborative job. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's stimulating, it's varied. Um, I, I sort of, I keep saying to, to my family, I feel, I feel like I was sort of genetically engineered for this job. Um, <laughs> I spent 20, 20 years of my career slogging away, learning my craft. And then suddenly I got into a position where I could really sort of, you know, self-actualize across this, this entire domain. And it's, it's truly a wonderful position to be in. 
Well, listen, the thing that's really fascinating, there's a couple of elements that I understand about your work and then something on your personal bio that I got to ask you about. So all these brands, and a, and a lot of times the brands bring forward ideas that let's just say they're, they're, they want to be first movers, right? Like it may not be tested and it may not, it's like a new experience. And of course, in the world of marketing, advertising, very few brands want to emulate another. They all want to be groundbreaking and first. That's a fact of the desire. Then we read on your bio that you're kind of a skeptical technologist, that, that you're critical of hype and overpromise of current options, yet profoundly optimistic about long-term value. You got on one side, your customers want to push the envelope and they say, hey, Stefan, team, I got this idea. I want to do this. I want to do this like virtual reality world, augmented reality world. You say, okay, that's nice. On the other hand, you also have to know that this technology is going to work. And you say you come at technology with a skeptical eye. You're optimistic, but at the same time, I guess critical. And it makes total sense because if I'm a big brand and I get millions of people engaging in my product or service and it sucks, we already know they're going to blame you. They're going to say, hey, Stefan, you guided me down a bad path. So how do you do that balance? How do you approach this idea of like pushing innovation, but at the same time, taking a critical eye? Yeah, you've got to have a balance, right? And you can't, you can't do only one or the other. Um, I mean, I think the way, the way I think about it is, is um, maybe my sort of internal justification of the balance is that, uh, you know, you have sort of two, two areas where, where innovation impacts. Um, on the one hand, you know, innovation can sometimes just drive incremental benefit to something you're already doing, right? So um, I'll give you an example. So um, in, in advertising for a long time, we've had this notion of dynamic content optimization. So if you're doing digital ads, say in, in Meta or on Instagram or on, you know, on YouTube, you can optimize the, the various components of those ads depending on the people receiving them. And, and the sort of idea of dynamic content, you know, sort of a fundamental uh, driver of, of effectiveness of digital advertising. Now, one of the, the small incremental innovations we've, we've done over the last, you know, sort of year is that we are now able to do um, dynamic content or dynamic video in television advertising. So now you can be sitting at home watching the same show as your neighbor on TV, right? Not on your laptop, on TV. And because of the innovation that we've, we've done in terms of bringing connected video to, to TV platforms, you guys can be seeing entirely different ads. So imagine a TV ad of say 30 seconds, cut up into 10 different clips. Every single one of those clips can be different for you than your neighbor, or they can be in a different order. The text overlay on the ad can be entirely different for the two of you. And even the soundtracks um, overlaying that video can be entirely different for the two of you. Now, that, that allows us to then optimize based on performance and about targeting attributes, et cetera, in, in television advertising. Now, that might seem really boring, and most marketers would, would go, yeah, that's not disruptive. That's, you know, that's sort of just incremental innovation. But the economic value of that is enormous, right? The, the commercial value of that innovation is massive, right? Then you have other things which, you know, get a lot of hype and a lot of excitement, and people think they want to go there, and it catches people's imagination. Metaverse is probably a good idea. And then, you know, you read that Decentraland has 38, you know, kind of um, wallet signed in customers on a daily basis. And you go, that has zero incremental commercial value. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that you cited that article. I read that same thing, too. It was like it's like uh, it was like one point something billion dollars invested, 30 users. I'm like, that's right. <laughs> And so you can't, you can't say the metaverse is not a thing. You can't say virtual reality is not a thing because it is a thing and it is going to be an even bigger thing in the, in the long term. And you've got to lean into those things and you've got to experiment with them and you've got to build capability and points of view and you've got to do work for clients. And frankly, some of the work we're doing for clients in metaverse type environments has been incredibly successful. I mean, we've, we've launched 
limited edition, you know, NFT sneakers. We've done all kinds of fantastic things. So it's not like all of it, it's, it's hype and, and doesn't create incremental value, but it's it's just not scaled when it's that early. And I think that's the, so so it's always a balance of of having something in the in the shop window, something on the shelves when the customer walks into the shop and then something in the warehouse. And frankly, you know, you pay the bills by what you sell through the warehouse, right? That's but right. You have to have stuff in the, in the shop window that gets people excited about, you know, your capability, your reputation, your, you know, your vision, right? Um, so it's just a balance, right? I used to work in a software company that serviced agencies, some of the big agencies, uh, the WPP family, uh, the Dentsu family. They were all customers of ours. And one of the things that marketers are traditionally known for and known for quite a bit is attribution, uh, using data to justify investment. So for yourself, when it comes to like groundbreaking technologies, which maybe there might not be a case study or evidence that something's going to work, how much of it is gut and how much of it is science, you know, data-driven decision-making, or is it, is it always a mix? Like, because when you, when you're trying to break ground, sometimes there is no data to suggest it's going to work. No, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I mean, sometimes you, you do have to take a leap of faith and sometimes you have to, to experiment and, and be willing to, to sort of, you know, fail fast if it, if it doesn't work. It's not always possible to be data-driven about everything. That's right. You know, for the, for the scaled investments, we, we obviously want to be. And a large part of what we're doing on our on our data analytics side is is giving clients more confidence or more certainty that the investments they're going to make are going to drive business results. And so, you know, there's a lot of investment and quite exciting in, um, developments around simulation and you know agent-based modeling and you know resource optimization. All of these kind of like analytical techniques that can give clients far more certainty that you invest these dollars, you're going to get that outcome. And that's absolutely you know has to be the core of the offering. But then there's certain things where you where you say, look, I'll give you an example around um, this notion around how do you drive relevance without personally identifiable information. We've been for years driving this this thesis that the more you know about people, the more relevant you'll be able to be to them. Right. And and what what do we know about people? We know their gender. We know their income. We know their location. We know you know the ethnicity. Sometimes we know their purchase patterns. And and so you think, well, if I know everything about people, this sort of mythical 360 view of a customer, then I'll be able to be more relevant to my messaging. And and then all the studies we show, all the studies we run show that that doesn't really create an enormous amount of lift. And for certain categories, particularly CBG and, and, and other categories, that, that data, that information about who someone is, is actually really a weak determinant of how they're going to behave. And the more we look at it, we go, well, you know, what, what are the other big drivers of, of behavior? It's the creative, it's the messaging, it's the offer. Okay, those things are all important. But probably the most important thing that drives behavior is the context that the consumers find themselves in. So, you know, you, Albert, when you add a football game, you know, with friends, you know, might have a certain, you know, need or a certain requirement, you know, in terms of what beverage you want to buy. Okay. Whereas, uh, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, at Costco buying your, doing your weekly shop, you know, you're making different decisions. Whereas if you are at home binging on Netflix, you, you have an entirely different requirement again. So same person, three different contexts. How do we, how do we, how can we be relevant to you? And so, you know, there's, there's a theory about, um, you know, this notion of occasion-based marketing, which is really, really powerful, but no one has actually managed to, to do marketing activation and creative targeting based on that. And so, you know, that's a great example of something where, we have enough enough research data to say 
that is worth investing in and building as a capability, and we're going to roll that out. And luckily, the economy is not that dire that we we, we don't have enough money to experiment and, <laughs> and yeah. take investments on theories like that. <laughs> so the thing that you just said is really relevant in the world of marketing because the, we saw a huge shift. It's happened just recently with you know the device makers trying to make it more private for the consumer, right? So Apple, the iOS updates. We've read in all the articles about Facebook aver- Facebook advertising has fallen off of a cliff. If we talk to D2C consumers uh, or D2C operators, they're talking about ads being less effective. So you are in this interesting position because like, you, you know, you're tasked with understanding the platforms, you're tasked with understanding consumer. And at the same time, the platforms and consumers or platforms for sure are changing pretty darn fast. How are you and your teams thinking about navigating these changes? Because you, you kind of hit on it a couple of times, which is this. We used to think you, if you had a 360 view of consumer, you got it, right? Well, that's kind of going, that's, I won't say it's going away. It's starting to be limited. I think that's fair to say, right? And I think that's going to continue because I think the device makers are going to keep on that pledge because it seems like con- consumers like it, right? So they're going to, they're going to make it more private. The context is pretty cool that we talked about because that seems, like you said, it relies on less, um, less about me. And then the other thing that I also want to hit, hit you up on is this new emergence of, interest. Uh, like, So I've been reading about, for example, TikTok. How did TikTok succeed or rise so quickly? And what they basically uncovered is that actually your friend network isn't really a good indicator of you at all. You know what I mean? Like you can be friends with someone who, you know, for example, I like surfing, you like another sport, but that doesn't mean you like surfing. Like <laughs> even though we can be friends, it doesn't matter. And so what TikTok and some of the other platforms figured out was actually people just like what they like. They don't, like you can't figure out their interest is actually more important than their demo. Maybe their location and interest combined is the key. So when you think about these things and how fast it's changing, it's unlocking opportunity. But how much are your teams also being forced to change as well? And how are you mitigating that change? Because I'm sure every like every day, not every day, maybe every quarter, you guys are telling your teams, hey, we got to change our approach. Yeah, I, th- I think um, sort of the reason why I love this industry and this job so much is that you know, change is constant. And, and I think change generates an enormous amount of, of ideation and innovation. And, and I love that, right? I don't see it as a, as a risk or kind of a, as a challenge. I see it as, as, as energy. I see it, it, it as, I feel it's massively invigorating. We obviously track the industry extremely closely and we sit on the, the advisory boards of all the big digital platforms. And, you know, we have legal and regulatory, you know, advisors, you know, consulting with us on, on this stuff all the time. And so, uh, you know, I think specifically this issue around consumer data management is a much longer arc. You know, it, it really started with consumers having a backlash against, um, you know, third-party cookies and putting in ad blockers, browsers and these kind of things. It then, you know, um, was sort of fast followed by the regulators, particularly in Europe, um, you know, where the European Union has been very strict on consumer data management for years now with GDPR. You know, the U.S. is now becoming stricter um, through legislation like CCBA. But then, you know, you have all these sort of um, these sort of black swans that come in from the side, like, you know, China um, that, that roll out people. And literally within three months, we're not allowed to use any third party cookies at all. And we have to adopt new new methods of, of you know, targeting consumers. And so I think the the um, the regulatory regime is sort of moving in one direction, and then thirdly, the the technology companies, um, you know, even long before Google announced that we're going to deprecate third-party cookies in Chrome, I mean, Safari, Mozilla, all these platforms, you know, were not allowing third-party cookies for years already. So you know, signal from third-party cookies has been declining massively, and and you know. Uh, so it's not a surprise, and 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 that gives you more time to to figure out what you want to do and how you want to respond to it, right? Um, I, I just think 
our role as agencies um, are really to represent our clients' interests and our clients' brands and to be stewards of their brands, um, which, which includes, by the way, the trust relationship between those brands and their, their customers, right? Their, their end consumers. And, and I just don't think that surveillance is a particularly good customer experience, you know? I mean, if, you, if you're a consumer and, you know, you know that um, a brand that you love and that you shop with regularly, you know, sort of tracking you around the internet and trying to figure out, you know, like what websites you go to and what content you read. I mean, it's just negative, right? It's a, it's a terrible <laughs> experience. So, so just like, you know, when I walk into your shop and it's hot outside and I want a cold Coke, give me a cold Coke, right? Don't, don't say, I want your email address and, you know, sign up to my Instagram page. <laughs> And, you know, what, what's your income? And, you know, define your gender for me. It's like, no, just give me a freaking cold Coke, right? Um, but understanding context and understanding occasions com- completely is not just a question of knowing where you are, um, you know, at what time. It's understanding a whole lot of other things about you. It's understanding, you know, the weather, the traffic patterns. Are you in an event? You know, are there lots of other people at the event? Um, it's understanding, you know, at an aggregate level, you know, what music genres are trending in this part of New York City? Right, and 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 this is the beautiful thing about occasion-based, um, you know, planning and activation or occasion-based targeting is that you don't have to know things at the granular level. You can know things at a city level, you can know things at a state level, and drive an enormous amount of relevance for consumers, um, you know, at that level. So, I mean, we're we're excited about that approach, and I think it's um, it's completely in line with the zeitgeist. It's exactly where consumer sentiment is going. It's where the regulators and the technical, you know, kind of standards are going. We're investing a lot of time and effort in, in building solutions for, for our clients to do that. And we're at an interesting time right now, today. The global economies, most co- economies have been on the upswing since 2008. So there's, and then during the, during the pandemic, the reality is for a lot of brands, like they saw sales go through the roof. There was a ton of brands that did saw exceptional uh, buying activity for their products and services. And that is quickly reversing course as in you're living it right now. How do you, how are these new methods? Cause this is kind of all happening together, right? You got the, the <laughs> you got the, you got the, tra- you got the privacy of the devices going up, the ability to track going down. You got the economy shifting right now to the negative side and you have, and you, like you already said, you still got brands that want to keep doing a great job. So what are you seeing today that you're, you know, you mentioned location. What are some of the other things you're seeing today that are, you believe are going to be successful or a better way to market, let's say in the next five years. So we'll go in a short-term horizon because technology, it's still hard to look beyond five years. No, I think the macro pressure as you, as you've outlined it is, is effectively that, you know, people want to do more with less, right? So you, you just gonna, are going to, you know, come to the pressure, um, you know, um, if there's a full-on recession, I mean, you know, sales will decline, and therefore, you know, it, it, it's it'll become a little bit of a pressure cooker in terms of of you know what you deliver for the value that you um you know for the for the value that's that's been invested. But I think that's always a good thing because it really focuses the mind. You know, it, it, you know, you 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 kind of declutter and get rid of all the things that are peripheral, all the things that were a waste of time, and you just focus on what really matters. And I think what the besides besides how we how we understand relevance, right? This idea of kind of occasion, you know, planning and and, uh, and targeting. Um, the other thing that's really um, accelerating right now is the innovation in how we make work, in how we produce content, and and that's at a number of different levels, right? So at the at the really kind of most complex level, 
it's this idea of, well, how do you make a film, right? How do you make a, a piece of content for, you know, for an ad? And, you know, the old model was you would fly, a, you know, 100 people down to Cape Town in the summer, and then, you know, you'd hang around in a nice hotel until the weather was right, and then you'd go out onto the beach, and then the wind was blowing, and then you'll stop, and you'll go back the next day. And then eventually after a week, you shot, you know, I don't know, 400 hours of, of footage, and then you fly back to New York and then you edit the whole thing and then you have meetings and people check it out and they make comments and you have re-edits and re-edits and re-edits. And eventually, you know, like this massive supply chain, you know, the film gets made. Now, you've flown people around the world. You've spent an enormous amount of money, millions of dollars in some cases, right, on these production shoots. And um, that's just not sustainable, right? It's not sustainable from a climate perspective. It's not sustainable from a budget perspective, from a time perspective. And so what's happened in the last, and this, this really happened rapidly during COVID, is the entire production process became, um, uh, became deconstructed. And so instead of, instead of having everyone on the site, um, we basically sent out either a film crew with a drone and one camera. It's like two, two people with, with a camera and a drone to shoot the set, right? We would then take that set information or footage and we would create it into a virtual mesh in Unreal Engine in effectively a high definition, you know, kind of computer game interface, computer game world. We would then project that world onto an LED screen in the studio and put actors and products usually using CGI into the film, combine it all and make a final product, right? Now, you've taken effectively the set, the, the, the product, the actors, you know, and completely separated them, put them back together again, and then made, made a product. We didn't innovate that. We stole that from Disney. They, that's what they, they used to make the Mandalorian. So the Mandalorian, right, was not shot in the desert. The Mandalorian was shot in front of an LED screen in the studio. I did not know that. And that is, it's an it's an amazing story. Look it up. I mean, it's it's been well documented. That's awesome. And and so, but this idea of of being able to use technology to ra radically change the production process for something even that's like film quality, you know, kind of work is amazing. We do a lot of work with um, with Epic and Unreal Engine. If you know the, the the latest Matrix film, that scene in the dojo on the lake, that is done in Unreal Engine. It's completely virtual, right? Um, and we've done work for bands like The Steel, and you know a lot of for our, a lot for a lot of our car brands, where um, you know we've used a similar kind of technology to create virtual worlds, either immersive or just you know high high end film. So that's sort of one end of it. And then the other end of it is is really this this notion of how do you just get huge volumes of of very effective content out there for for digital um, ad targeting and, and optimization. And again, you can't um, you know firstly you can't build all the variants manually, but secondly you've got to optimize them on the fly. That entire process has also been massively technology mediated. And then probably lastly, which I know is again getting a lot of interest, but it's actually getting quite fast adoption, is this whole idea of generative content. So using machines to make content. So DALI, Fusion, Midjourney, you know, that whole category, GPT-3. And those tools are exciting because they get you from, from idea to representation really quickly. So if you're a creative person working in a, in a, in a studio in an agency and you want to show the client an idea that you have, you know, if you, if you can put in the right prompts and stable diffusion, immediately you can say, oh, it'll look kind of like this. <laughs> and you haven't, you've had, you haven't had to illustrate. You haven't had to pay an, art, an artist to do the work. You haven't had to film anything. You haven't had to find stock photography. You know, very quickly you can just say, hey, don't tell me, show me and I can show you. And what's really interesting about generative content is that it's becoming so good now that very soon, 
like not not five years, like in the in the eighteen month to two year horizon, we're going to be able to start using machine generated content in commercial work that no human would be able to tell whether it was made by a human or a machine. I saw some crazy articles on this kind of stuff about like, uh, hey, look at these models; they're all AI. I was like, what? And then uh, so like, and we've seen, of course, deep fakes. But like you're saying, this is going to be potentially a new standard uh, and used in a good way, but a new standard, like. So advertising is traditionally, you already hit at it, been very expensive, right? It's traditionally been very expensive. Content production is quite expensive. Licensing and rights to people's faces. I can say that I used to work at a technology company and one of our customers was Coca-Cola and they had an agreement with Taylor Swift and there was an agreement in the clause that when the, the contract ran out, like the instances of her, her likeness had to be taken down because the contract was over. And so we had to build a sunsetting feature in our platform to know to pull that down from all the social sites. And so I was thinking like name, image, and likeness is so expensive, but it can also, this technology could potentially make it more accessible. Like if I'm that person, I can say, oh, I'll lend you my face and you don't even need me to do anything. Like you could just create content using my name, image, and likeness if I gave it to you. What do you see happening is, is like pushing these drivers? You mentioned before like the cost economics, but it also feels like the consumer side is also dictating this pace because consumers themselves are consuming what appears to be more and more and more or less frequently. Like all of these things are, I guess, colliding. I mean, all of this is happening right now. I mean, Bruce Willis just um, did, a, did a contract for his likeness, voice and likeness to be used um, in deep fakes into the future. I mean, he's, he, licensed, he licensed himself. The technique itself is less interesting to me than the ideas behind the technique or the, the, the ideas that the technique can, can un, unlock. So let me give you two examples of work we did recently, which are fantastic. So the one was um, for, for Cadbury's chocolate in, um, in India. And it's in India, Cadbury's chocolate is like a, a real delicacy and it's seen as a special thing and, you know, it's sort of um, a bit of an indulgence, right? And, and so in India, um, Cadbury's, um, every year they do a campaign around Diwali, Vessel of Lights. And the whole idea is we give back to the community. So we're going to help people. We're going to provide light, provide, you know, some kind of gift to, to the society in India um, through, through our presence in the market. And this year we did this wonderful campaign with the, it's like the biggest Hollywood actor in, in India, this guy called Shah Rukh Khan. I mean, he's bigger than any Hollywood actor, right, in terms of followers and, and, and you know, movie, movie views, et cetera. We did an ad where we, we got Shah Rukh Khan to promote every small business in India individually. Now, think about what I've just said, right? There's a lot. <laughs> there are millions. So what we had to do is we said, where's the person viewing this ad? So it's all mobile phones, right? Where's the person viewing this ad? You geolocate the, the phone and you say, what are the three small businesses around the person? This, you know, sort of eye, eye doctor, this dentist, you know, this kind of you know, shoe store. And because it's all in Google Maps, right? Every geolocation point has three small businesses closest to them. That's just that's just data, right? So that's what we started with. We then said, let's make an ad where Shah Rukh Khan promotes three small businesses during the during the ad, and we get his permission to deepfake him so that he says the says the name or says the you know the, the brand of each one of these small businesses and refers to them in the ad, right? So this is real time deepfakes, right? Rendering as a video ad for every single consumer wherever they are. 
so the impact of this was just unbelievable, right? Someone is sitting there going, you know, Shara Khan has promoted the three small businesses around me. This is amazing, right? And if you're a small business owner, you can go into a platform, submit your name of your small business, and Shara Khan makes an ad for your, you know, make for, makes an ad promoting your small business. I mean, the the impact um, it blew it blew the lights, you know, out. It was just incredible, um, and and that is using deepfake technology for a really clever idea, right? The the other example of that was um, we did a campaign for Dove, um, extension of their, their real beauty campaign, really focusing on toxic beauty advice um, that teenagers get on, on, on social media. And the setup was that we got a number of daughters and mothers, and we got the permission of the mothers to deep fake their likeness and voices. And we got the mothers to effectively say the things that daughters would see social media influencers say, um, you know, in social media. Oh, you don't have to eat, just drink more water, you can file your teeth, you know, I mean, whatever, you know, all kinds of horrendous toxic beauty advice, right? And then we filmed the, the daughters seeing that advice given by their mothers, as if their mother said those words. And the, the impact was was unbelievably emotional. I mean, the, the mother started crying, the daughter started crying. It was like, you know, but it, but it was the, the creative concept um, of would your mother give you this advice and finding the, the friction point, right? Finding the friction point in the, cultural, in the cultural situation was only made possible by deepfakes. And that's something, I mean, that's brilliant, right? That's, that's when you really are, you know, applying creativity and technology to a social observation, which I think is, I mean, that's, that's what excites me. I think, I mean, deepfakes for its own sake, so what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That human element is always going to be there. I think so. Your, your team is going to always be protected in that regard because I don't think machines will ever be able to innovate. And I don't, I don't know if they'll be able to storytell. They'll be able to tell a story that that's heard before, but I don't know if it'll ever be able to tell the next great story, create the next great storyline. That's not what data really does. You know, like it's, a, it's a more of a, more of a art than a, than a science. The other way you describe that the science is just enabling you to unlock these art stories that Otherwise, maybe you couldn't maybe you couldn't execute on it within the budget or whatever the reason is. Yeah, technically you couldn't execute on them. I mean, I, I think you know what's interesting is that I mean, to your point about can machines be creative? I think what's interesting is how humans and machines can work together to to create. And by that, I'm not saying that that machines can be creative, but but I think sometimes the the prompts that are given are unexpected and are and and push you in different directions, right? And and so I think. Even if it's a mashup, um, which technically mostly it is, really, it's just a mashup of pre pre-hashed ideas and pre, you know, pre-existing linguistic structures, visual structures. I mean, that's really what you know machine learning and, and GANs do. It sometimes just pushes you in a direction that you wouldn't have uh, thought about. And so I think this idea of augmented creativity, you know, is is like you think about like your satnav, right? Satnav is really augmented, you know, navigation. I mean, it, it's most humans have become quite dependent on it because they were never that good at navigation. But yeah. you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> machines in, in a creative sense can really augment our creativity. And and so I think from that perspective, this is where this kind of generative content is so so interesting. It really kind of does push people to think of new opportunities, different ideas uh, that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have come up with. Uh, it's, it's but it's just another tool. I see there's a there's a long arc of additional tools. You know, like the, the the sort of charcoal crayon to the you know to oil paint to you know Microsoft Paint to Photoshop <laughs> to Dali. Right? I mean, <laughs> these are just yeah. it's a long arc of of tools for creativity. 
Yeah, I like the way you frame it, just tools of creativity. By the way, I know you live in London or near there, um, satellite navigation. Yeah, the only time I visited, I was like, this is the most difficult place to get around on Earth. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things that we always want to do when we meet interesting characters such as yourself is we want to learn a little bit about you. So, you know, you mentioned before, you're very fortunate and you're thankful for the seat that you have today. But I got to ask, we did a little homework on you. Like you started in law. How did how did the, a law kid studying cases become a CTO for the world's largest marketing agency holding company? Like how did this happen? You know, um, life is long and windy. No, I mean, in retrospect, all kind of logical. I am. Um, I went to law school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And that that's kind of what I was, you know, semi-good at it my in my undergrad. I really wanted to become a musician. Um, but I, I realized I wasn't talented enough to make a good living from that. So um, Hey, I'm a failed you know, rock star too. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even gonna be a rock star, but anyway. Um and, and, and from law, um, you know, I, I sort of got into it intellectually and, and then studied media and telecoms law at Columbia. And um, it was right at the right time and place because it was 95, 96 in New York City and AOL was was booming and, you know, um, everyone was going crazy for the internet. They just started got getting commercialized at that point. And my media law and telecommunication studies, I, I really got interested in this, like this, this new platform and medium and started thinking about business models that, that could work on it. And so... At the time, I was on a sabbatical from, from a company in South Africa, pay TV business that I was working at. Um, and I went back after my, my master's and said to them, we need to start a business on the internet. We just need to like spin up websites, sell advertising on, the web, on this website. This is like, and they're like, great, you go do that. And I'm like, I've never run a business in my life. I'm 26. I've got no idea. <laughs> um, and they just gave me the, the opportunity. And, and I, I, had, I was fortunate. I had this fantastic mentor, a guy called Chris Becker, who's one of the most unknown but but most cele- should be most celebrated entrepreneurs um, of the 20th century. Um, you know, he he invested very early in Tencent in China um, that created um, several hundred um, billion dollars worth of value for his business. Yeah, he did okay. Um, <laughs> he did okay. He did fine. He's now a beautiful country estate. Um, but Chris gave me, he gave me the break. He gave me money and time to figure this thing out, build a business around it. And that gave me the confidence then to start my own company, which then 12 years later, WPP bought. And, you know, it's just been a wonderful journey of, of growth and, and, and discovery along the way. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's something, something to be said for being in the right time in the right place. There's something about luck, having good mentors. I mean, all those things I'm super grateful for. And for the rest, you know, it's just um, show up and work hard, you know. I there mean, you go. That's no substitute for it. <laughs> yeah, the uh, I mean, it, it repeats itself again. So when we when we've had CTOs and and people that run really interesting companies join us on the show, it often starts as like they're just doing the work. You know what I mean? Like they don't have like an eye towards an end destination. They're like, hey, I just want to do this thing right now, the best of my ability, and then that's what teaches them as much as they can learn. So that's how you go from a law school degree to like overseeing <laughs> overseeing a huge tech operation, which is pretty fascinating. No, and I think, I mean, if I, if I can, just one, one more thing I can say about that, which is that it really, it really matters to, to build, to, to develop your craft early on in your career. You know I mean? And, and, and sometimes these sort of, you know, white spaces where no one else is doing things, having to figure things out in first principles was really important. I mean, you know, I, I licensed the, the double click ad server um, from, for that, that project initially, and they sent me a bunch of CDs and an instruction of what service to build, you know? And, and I was like, okay, I go, <laughs> go out and buy a rack full of servers, load the CDs, um, you know, and then, and then I had to figure out how to get 
bandwidth from Johannesburg, South Africa to New York via a, a new satellite transponder, right? I mean, it's like, so these, these sort of really basic, you know, early on um, fundamental practical problems are really useful because they stick with you, right? And they kind of, they, they give you the, the foundational learning and understanding of everything for the rest of your career, right? That's absolutely true. Stefan, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing so much of the journey of WPP. It's doing with its customers as well as your own personal journey. It's always great hearing about different applications of technology. Most of the time on IT Visionaries, we do have software leaders on the show. So it's always great hearing a different perspective. I want to say thank you for joining us on IT Visionaries. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform, digital transformation for every experience. Stefan, this is where we ask you questions outside the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? I'm ready. All right. You hinted at it, but I want to make sure, are you from South Africa? I'm from South Africa. Okay. Are you afraid of great white sharks or is it not a problem? <laughs> I've never met one. Um, <laughs> I would be very afraid if I met one. <laughs> you've lived all over the world and it sounds like you've traveled all over the world meeting all these customers. Where's a place where you would say, hey, if you've not been there, you should go again? Cape Town, South Africa. What's 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 fabulous about Cape Town? The, the nature, the oceans, the wine country, the people, the culture. It's, um, it's a manageable mid-sized city. Think Austin by the beach with cool people. <laughs> well, I know of Cape Town because I, like I've already hinted at before, I'm an avid serving fan. I'm very familiar with the waves of South Africa, but I'm scared to death of great white sharks. And therefore, <laughs> it will not be a place I add to my surfing journey. <laughs> <laughs> what are some campaigns, you know, curiously for yourself, what are some campaigns you're like most proud of? Like, wow, that was, that was killer. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't do this, but um, Apple 1984, I think was, was absolutely seminal. I mean, it's some of the best work um, our industry's ever produced. I think, I think the best work is still to come. That Cadbury's work that we did last year, the, the, the Shara Khan work, I think is um, Diwali work is absolutely inspirational. I think it's wonderful. Any work that, as, as we said, you know, touches, touches human on, on some fundamental humanity is, is really stuff that I'm proud of. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of what we do at WP. What's a brand that you really like personally? New Balance. Um, I, I, I used to be a big ONS fan until I discovered wide New Balances. And I think they are just, they've changed my life. I think they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so in the Americas, New Balance has a bad reputation for being uh, dad shoes. <laughs> Well, I'm turning 50 this year. I've got a 23 year so yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay. Full dad mode achieved. Hey, listen, I'm a dad too. I rock new balances myself, you know? <laughs> Stefan, it's been awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing all the things that you're doing at WPP. And I agree with you. I'm always a champion of small business. And so I think the number one thing I see coming is the, the advent of all this technology in the content creation space is going to unlock a small business operator's ability to, you know, and, and this is going to be your challenge, which is they're going to be able to compete with some of the bigger players in terms of content creation. Because like you said before, some of these things used to be off limits to a small budget, like you couldn't do it, but technology is going to make it so that it's possible. And so it's really going to be a battle of storytelling because technology is going to flatten, you know, it's going to flatten the, the playing field of content creation. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll see how that unfolds. <laughs> absolutely. Stefan, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Albert.